0: So, uh, I'm just going to give an overview of where we are with the Binal Housing Report. Um, The report is a work of the Housing Strategy Committee. Um, Because it covers all housing, we broke it into manageable chapters, um, everything from homelessness through student housing. Each of those chapters has been sent to council, referred out to committees, and come back for approval. Um, Because we started writing this in 2014. Some of those early chapters were out of date. So at the end of 2016, we decided to take everything we'd written, update it through the 2015 census and 2016 building permit assessor data, that sort of stuff, Um, and then as well as give some updates on our progress to date. Um, And that's the report that you have. The 192 pages is uh, the most recent data we have as of the end of 2016. So – I will just go through some of the sort of high level data and then the highlights of, from each of the chapters um, as a housekeeping sort of thing, um, just some language that we use when we talk about affordable housing. we're talking about uh, the relationship between how much someone is paying in housing, um, that's rent and utilities, and their income. So housing is affordable when it costs less than 30 percent of your household income. So if you are making minimum, working full-time, making minimum wage, that's $15,000 a year. And you can pay $375 a month in housing costs. Not very much. If you are a median one-person household, you make about $60,000 a year, which means you can pay $1,500 a month in housing costs. If you make $100,000 a year, which is a family of four at about 120 percent of our median income, you could pay uh, $2,500 a month in housing costs. So the point is, is everyone has a limit to what's affordable to them. Um, but what we really, when we're talking about affordable housing, most people are talking about housing that is affordable to low-income households, households making, you know, 30, 50, or 60 percent of our median income. Um, just, as a language thing. Um, the whole report is sort of put in terms of supply of housing and demand for housing supply is easy to wrap your head around it's you know it's units that are available we can count that demand is much harder for us to wrap our heads around and count Um, but when we talk about demand we're talking a lot about growth and incomes um, in our community and the city of Madison grows at a really steady one percent per year going all the way back to the to 1950 Um, and that's what was happening in our market from two thousand to two thousand seven when the recession happened. We're growing at our one percent per year in population, but we're actually we're losing renters and we were adding a lot of larger household homeowners during that time. The recession happens two thousand seven and growth starts to speed up in the city of Madison. So we start to grow at more like one and a half or two percent per year, which that's only a half percent, but it's that's a fifty percent jump in growth. Um, and all of that growth was in renters. We added only a couple hundred owner households, and we added 17,000 renter households between 2007 and 2015. So that's a huge amount of pressure on, on our rental market. And as we'll see other, as we go through this, that's caused a number of our housing problems. Um, when we look at who we're adding from 2007 to 2015, um, it's, it's millennials and it's baby boomers, and that's, that's not unique to Madison. That's, those are two big demographic booms that are moving uh, just through, through the market. Um, if we would look at just renters, it is entirely millennials, driving all growth, um, really, in that market. Uh, when we look at it by income, this is a really difficult graph to read. But what we should take away from this is of those 17,000 households, about half of them had incomes over $100,000 per year. And then the other half of people, there was a big jump in very low-income households right after the recession. Um, and then in recent years, a lot of that growth has been in middle-income households, 50 dollars to $100,000 per year. Um, and in the rental market, it's the same thing. There's, a lot of the growth is on the high end. Um, but there's also sort of this post-recession jump in low-income renters that we added as well. Um, To go back to that idea of affordability and housing cost burden, about half of our renters can afford the housing that they're in. A quarter of renters pay 30 to 50% of their income in rent, and a quarter of our renter households pay more than half of their income in rent. Students mess this all up because they don't make any money and they pay a lot in rent. But if we would take students out of this, we would still probably have about 7,000 renter households that are not students that pay more than half of their income in rent. And so that is, um, that is you know, one missed paycheck, one health crisis away from homelessness. And that is, that is a serious problem. Uh, the other thing to notice in this is this, this precedes the recession. This is not the recession causing a bunch of people to be housing cost burdened. This is a structural issue in our economy that we have a lot of people who don't make very much money, and we have housing costs that go up a lot faster than their wages do. Um, And if we would look at any growing city in America, it would have a similar sort of problem where you just cannot provide enough affordable housing for your low-income populations. Um, So kind of go through chapter by chapter. We'll look at a highlight of the data and then the recommendations and where we are in them. So when we started writing the chapter on homelessness in 2013, 2014, by pretty much every measure that we have, things were getting worse. So the number of people in shelters, the number of people who are unsheltered, the number of people who are um, chronically homeless, all of these things were going up um, 2010, 11, 12, 13. Uh, and that's the, That was the message that I was saying in 2013, is things are getting measurably worse across the board. When we went back and looked at the data for this revision, what we saw was that 2013 was really the high point, and things leveled off, and by most of our measures, things are getting better. We've not solved homelessness, but in all of those measures I talked about, things are are getting better. And a lot of that is not things that came from this chapter. It's that the city um, embarked on coordinated intake so that we are... People are sort of coming in a similar, the same front door, we're doing a standardized assessment of people's needs, so we're doing just a better job of getting people into the housing that's gonna work for them um, who are homeless. Also, during this time, the economy recovered somewhat, and that helped everything. Um, the things that the chapter really called out were that we need to target our hardest-to-serve populations, people who are chronically homeless, people who have a whole host of um, housing challenges. And we need to really push resources into that side of things, partially to give some relief to the overall homeless services spectrum. Um, so, permanent supportive housing is our solution for that. So, housing with services attached. Um, rapid rehousing is a model where we try to get people out of shelter as soon as possible into housing that has some rent support, some services attached to it. Um, with the idea that people will graduate into the general housing market, so uh, we've done this. We've we've added units. We've converted temporary housing to this sort of housing. We've converted excess CDA housing to this. So we've really expanded the supply, and it's a model that works. And then the last thing is to plan for shelter replacement. So as our current homeless shelters hit the end of their useful life, instead of replacing it with another church basement or old school gymnasium we would have purpose-built and designed shelter that really functions well for people who are in it and for the people who who staff these um, these buildings. And the city should take an active role in helping guide where these things go so that they they go to places that have a lot of services that the homeless population will tap into, as well as great bus service. Um, so the most visible thing to come out of this is Rethke Terrace, um, which is 60 units of permanent supportive housing. Um, On the east side, Uh, this building is LEED Platinum and Passive House certified, so it is quite likely the greenest, most energy-efficient apartment building in the Midwest. Um, The building targets our most vulnerable populations. Um, It has 24-7 staffing, and it has its own on-site social services team. So this is Phase 1. Phase 2 is um, on Tree Lane on the west side, which is under construction now. Phase 3... You have a resolution in front of you tonight to get introduced to keep that project moving forward. So the goal is to add 250 units over five years of permanent supportive housing. On the rental side of things, um, so I started by saying we've been adding we had 17,000 renter households. That's about 2,000 new renter households per year. And from 2007 to 2014, we added nowhere near that many units. Some years we were adding 2,000 renters, and we are adding less than 500 new apartments to serve them. Um, it's only in the last couple of years that we've even been adding enough units to serve the people that are coming here, much less getting out of the hole that we, we dug, um, you know, five years ago. So uh, when demand starts to outstrip supply, vacancy rate starts to drop. So we went from a healthy vacancy rate um, when the recession started of about 5%, which is normal in the United States, um, to below 2% in 2013. Um, That is one of the lowest vacancy rates in the country at the time. And then despite all of the thousands and thousands of apartments that we've added, we've still not quite hit 3% vacancy in the city of Madison. So we are still quite a ways away from a 5% vacancy rate. Um, despite all the construction that we have seen. Um, So the other thing that happens when vacancy rate gets that low and demand outstrips supply is that prices go up. So we went from having one-bedroom apartments uh, listed at $700 to being listed at $1,200. So if you would go and shop for a one-bedroom apartment, this is the prices that you would see on average. So this is because landlords of existing units can charge more because they have a line of people out their door wanting to rent there. Also, when we've added units, the market is serving the the middle and the high end of the market first because there's enough demand. So they're pulling up the average by building these more expensive units. Um, So beyond just the supply and demand problems, uh, we have shrinking federal resources to provide affordable housing to those low-income populations. Construction costs go up about 7% per year um, just because of this building boom. And our sort of physical places where we can add a lot of apartments, to add 2,000 apartments per year. Um, We just don't have underutilized, you know, empty uh, parking lots next to grocery stores and jobs on great bus lines. Those are few and far between. So what we see is apartment buildings pushing farther into neighborhoods and farther out to the fringe of the city. Um, So this just gets harder to keep adding 2,000 apartments per year. So what are we going to do about it? Um, on the funding side, the city has created the Affordable Housing Fund, which is an incredibly flexible fund of money that provides about $4.5 million per year to support affordable housing development. Um, the only federal program that is is growing is the Section 42 tax credit program, which is extremely competitive, but it pays for the bulk of the cost of construction. So those are our tools. Um, And how we're going to get more units is that we are going to recruit developers to bring projects to us. And so the city issues an RFP every year that tells developers exactly what we want. It tells developers the income spectrum that we want to serve. It tells them we want one, two, and three-bedroom units in a building. It tells them where we want them to build. And it's designed to align these two funding sources together so that we get the most bang for our buck as a city. And this has worked. So we put out this map. The green shows where we really want to see things. The light gray and white shows where it's okay. And then the hash marks show where we don't want to add more units. So this is based on seven-day-a-week bus service. This is based on avoiding concentrations of poverty, um, places that have high amounts of amenities. And then the red dots show all the projects that we have funded in the last three years. Um, for the most part, developers are bringing us projects In those places that we're telling them to Um, and this has worked so in three years um, from the non homeless side of things we've seen a hundred million dollars of new affordable housing development on a seven and a half million dollar city investment Um, so if we would add together our homeless housing units and these affordable tax credit projects we're on track to have 600 units funded and under development And that puts us on track for our goal of 1,000 new units in five years. And just to give a sense of scale, our entire public housing portfolio that took 20 years to build is less than 1,000 units. So this is a lot of units. On the market rate side, we don't directly fund or, or build market rate housing. So our tools here are, number one is to have better information. So instead of me coming in front of you every two, in this case three years, to tell you what's happening in the market, We should push information out um, more frequently. We send a lot of information about the flow of development that's happening in our city. Permits, approvals, things that are under construction, and we can match that up with what's the vacancy in that place. So we can see, is there some place that vacancy is going up, but we don't have things getting built there, Um, and we can better align uh, the market. The second thing it's great what we're calling qu- development qu- districts.
1: Question, Matt. Do you want questions at the end or if you throughout? don't mind? Okay, Just thank you. Just
0: tight time. Okay. On. Um, uh, so the development district uh, is mirrored in the economic development strategy, the transportation master plan, and you'll probably see parts of it in the comp plan. And the idea here is that we're going to stack up all the tools that we have to help with the creation of of housing, and we're going to do it in specific places. So we'd identify those areas in the comp plan. We'd do some special planning, possibly, in those in those areas, urban design districts, that sort of thing. We'd proactively create TIF districts to support the creation of housing in those areas. We'd redirect our affordable housing funds to those areas. And then the city could actively land bank in those areas. And the idea would be, um, instead of having a reactive, one-off land banking program, we would have a, a proactive land banking program where we'd strategically make investments to encourage uh, new development in those places. Um, on the ownership side of things, um, so I started by telling you we haven't added a whole lot of new owners, and a, a lot of that is because it's a lot harder to get a mortgage than it was before the recession, and that just keeps a certain group of people out of the market. Um, the other thing is when we ask people who are potential first-time home buyers why they haven't bought, you know, the the delay of, Marriage, so becoming a two-income household, which gives you the the financial ability to purchase. Um, Having kids, making long-term career decisions. If you delay those things, it's naturally going to delay when you enter the homeownership market. So that's holding back things. But there's also a preference shift shift happening in our market. When we went out and surveyed um, employees of the city of Madison, Epic Madison College, and we asked them, people who own houses, you know, why do you live where you live? Uh, universally the cost of housing, the dwelling type, and being in a quiet and safe neighborhood w- were why people live where they live. When we asked people who are renting now but are interested in buying, what are you looking for when you buy, those same things were important, but uh, the commute, alternative transportation, and uh, proximity to amenities became much more important. Especially when you read the comments, it was people, care a lot, people who are looking to buy care a lot more about the place. Um, almost as much as they care about the actual unit that they would be purchasing. And this plays out in national data sets as well, is that um, younger households care about being close to things to do. They care about the neighborhood um, a lot. And so this is driving a shift in their preferences. Um, When we look at, if, if you're not adding a whole lot of new owners, we're not adding a whole lot of new ownership supply, So we've seen a slight increase in the amount of um, single-family house permits being pulled, um, but we're nowhere near where we were before the recession. Um, When we look at existing housing stock, by any measure, assessed value, sales, um, the Zillow prices, our market as a whole was recovered prices by 2016. We were back to where we were before the recession. Um, the only thing that hasn't recovered is interest rates are still really low, which helps make homeownership more affordable. Um, we sort of cut the market by price. A third of our market is valued below 200000 A third of our homes are between two and 300000 and a third of our homes are over 300000 But there's a strong geographic pattern to this, where the north, east, south, and parts of the southwest side are where we have those um, lower cost houses under $200,000. And then the near east, near west side, and then the edges of the city where we have new construction are where we have those much higher valued homes. Um, so part of this is there's, the stock is different in different places here. We have small houses and we have McMansions in some places. That drives the price. Some of this is that the, the neighborhood itself, um, people perceive value and are willing to pay more to be in certain places. Um, What's maybe more telling is when we look at the pattern over time of how prices changed from 2008 up to today. So overall, the market has recovered, but that's, again, not universal across the city. We have plenty of neighborhoods, um, especially neighborhoods on the near east and near west side, where prices are up more than 20% from the previous pre-recession peak. And then we have places on the north side, the south side, and the southwest side, where it's quite possible that values have not recovered to their pre-recession highs. Um, And when we do spot checks of houses for sale in those neighborhoods and what they sold at in 2008, they're maybe getting what what they bought it for in 2008. Um, So what do we do with all of this? Um, For low-income homeownership, the the thrust of things is first to have more robust homebuyer education, um, and if possible, tie it to what 's called an individual development account, so if people are in a home buyer education program are saving for a down payment we 'd provide matching funds as an encouragement to keep people working towards home ownership and keep keep doing the work they have to do. Um, secondly is consolidate city programs, so we have a whole lot of programs designed to help people get into home ownership, rehab homes. The problem is we have too many of them, and they they overlap, and in some cases, the rules can conflict with each other. So the idea here would be that we consolidate them to three simple, very effective rules that are designed to work with the current mortgage climate. For market rate side of things, um, those places where values have not recovered as quickly, um, we're labeling them opportunity neighborhoods. Um, and the idea there would be to uh, to really drive uh, a a next generation of homeowner into those places. So as we saw before, people value the access to amenities. And as a city, we control where libraries, community centers, and, and those sort of things go. So we can push them into neighborhoods that lack amenities. We also have tools um, in sort of what we allow to happen in places. And we can push for mixed-use development and possibly subsidize it to happen in places to bring amenities first. Um, The other thing is those homeownership programs that we talked about, we can geographically target them. So if someone is going to buy or rehab in one of these neighborhoods that values are not recovering, maybe you'd get a lower interest rate. Maybe you'd have access to a larger amount of money to make it more attractive for homeowners to go in and fix up houses in these neighborhoods. Um, In those neighborhoods where values are up more than 20%, we have the opposite problem. People want to be there and cannot afford to buy in these neighborhoods. Um, and so the bulk of the recommendation here is to um, encourage and just allow for the development of mid-scale, mid-density homeownership opportunities, so condos, townhouses, and the like. Some of that is, is the financing markets don't support that. Some of that is that we make it very difficult to develop some of those things, not by design, just by when you actually go to plot out how townhouses would work, They don't fit very well in the current zoning code or in the comp plan, so we're addressing that. Um, Really briefly, students and seniors, um, we have separate chapters on them because there's different things that drive decisions. Um, On the senior side, our fastest-growing group of seniors um, are, are baby boomers, many of whom are still working and own homes, so they actually have higher incomes and higher net worth than our typical household in the city of Madison. On the flip side, we have low income, fixed income renters um, who who don't have as many housing choices. Um, And really, the decision to change housing type amongst seniors is often driven by healthcare and disability decisions, um, which again, that's a little bit outside of our control here. Um, And then there is data that shows that baby boomers have a stronger preference for walkability and possibly smaller units than previous generations of seniors, which will change the types of housing that they could move into. Uh, Our recommendations here are really, um, overall, seniors tend to want to age in place, in the house that they live in, in the neighborhood that they've lived in. So first we need to identify where these places are, where there's large concentrations of seniors who, who already own or rent in those neighborhoods. And then we can push our senior services um, through the senior coalitions and the like to those places to help them age in place. We can also push our reverse mortgage and home renovation loans to that population to allow them to retrofit their houses and stay there longer. On the affordable housing side, um, the section 42 tax credits we talked about have a very strong preference for families. And up until this last year, we were not seeing senior projects get funded. So we've been working with the state to allow for more senior affordable housing development. And we've gone as far as having a pilot project on the far west side on Tree Lane that uh, mixes incomes. It's you know, close to bus, close to grocery, all those sort of things to show what that, pro- that kind of project could look like. On the student side, um, the big takeaway in the data is that UW-Madison is not growing. It's not grown in, in decades. Um, so... All of the development that we see towards campus isn't driven by some big influx in students. What's changing is the composition of the student body, um, that the family income of students has been going up very steadily for 40 years. Um, So we have higher-income students. Um, That's not to say we don't have low-income students. About a quarter of UW-Madison undergrads are from low-income families. Um, But this higher-income group is is shifting their preference to have new construction as close to campus as possible with a lot of amenities. This is not unique to Madison. If you look at any major college campus across the country, you'd see similar things. Um, one of the results of this is a softening of the market for these older, um, farther away units that tend to be less expensive. They're the last thing to lease up typically in uh, student housing provider's portfolio. So what do we do about it? Um, the, recommendation, the first recommendation was just to increase the uh, number of choices, the options for students close to campus. So some of that is allow for greater height, density. Um, we looked at models where uh, other universities are having micro units as small as 200 square feet for a studio apartment. Um, and then for affordability, our current TIF policy allows for um, student housing only in the case of affordable student housing which is not very well defined because what we really need to underwrite is the family of the student, which is harder to do. So we looked at possible ways of partnering with UW to have their student financial aid office make referrals um, for affordable units that could be created. Um, and then in those surrounding neighborhoods where students are leaving the housing stock, um, but often leaving it in a condition that makes it very hard to for a non-student to live in, um, looking at Does it make sense to allow for the demolition and construction of that middle-density type of housing stock that still fits the character of the neighborhood uh, but provides for uh, market rate, home ownership, or rental opportunities? And then uh, we have small-cap TIF programs that allow for the conversion of this kind of rental housing back to its original state of um, owner-occupancy. Those programs all end this year. Um, Some of them have already spent their... Allocation for the year. So, looking at ways to retool those and recreate those programs so we could capture the increment of these new student high rises and use it to support the neighborhoods where students are leaving. And that's 192 pages in 15 minutes. So,
1: okay, question. Yes. Um, could you go back to the affordable housing slide where you give the numbers? Yes. Um, What my question is, and I've raised this before, and I'm not quite sure where we are on this, is some of the affordable housing is rolling off the affordability Mm -hmm. list. So how are we dealing with that in terms of account of uh, what we really have that's affordable and whether we're um, kind of catching up or whether because things are falling off we're – kind of staying the same.
0: Yep. So in, in the projects where the city is a funder, we usually are not giving them money. We're loaning them money. So we still have that loan on our books. So we know exactly what's happening with that property. We also put a land use restriction on it so that for 30 years it has to stay affordable. Um, so if we fund it, we, we have 30 years of somewhat control and a, a finger on what's happening. For the projects that we did not fund in the past, like Quisling Terrace, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We, since we didn't fund it, we don't have a, an automatic trigger to know that something's happening with it necessarily. It's very difficult for at year 15 for those projects to flip over. Um, there's only a handful of times that's happened in Wisconsin. This is one of them. So so we were working with WIDA to have them pull the actual records in each of these to see if it's even possible for them to revert to market rate. Because not oh. all of them can. It's a unique Okay, rate. so
1: some can, some can't. Is it what you're saying? Yes, there was quizzing, a window apparently. of time yeah.
0: where yeah. it was easier for them to do this, and that's what we saw.
1: Okay, so in our counts, are, are you only counting then those um, – developments that the city has put money into as so opposed to the section? So when we look at the,
0: the, the broader range across the uh-huh. city, the 7,000-plus subsidized housing units uh-huh. in the city of Madison, we're tracking down the funding source, whether it be at the city, the state, or the federal government, and we're okay. pulling their active list of things that are still income-restricted because of how they're funded.
1: Okay, so that's in process then, basically. Yeah,
0: so okay. that is something we have to update regularly and it comes from you know like 20 different sources so it's okay but but we do it on a regular basis
1: okay very good thank you
0: must have been really thorough okay